0: Before the rings of power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coase.
1: Welcome to episode 24 of Window on the West. My name is Jonathan Watson. We are reading through the Silmarillion, and today we'll be going through chapter... 18 the latter half of chapter 18 and i will be going through it with dan Coates here to my left oh no wait it's mike oh yes I my know, beard. to my left he's here to my left and, and, and but but to my right michael michael
0: will be playing the part of dan in this episode <laughs> that's
2: right and dan <laughs> is down below i was only um, like two minutes late man was,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so say we all
1: yeah <laughs> uh, it's good to have you guys here. It's good to see you again after a week of little discussion, but lots of reading. So, indeed, we are going to uh, jump right into it. We're going to skip All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter, because I want to get right into this chapter, and we're going to discuss at the end um, C.S. Lewis's review or response uh, to what folks were saying about the Two Towers and Return of the King. It's an article we mentioned last week, um, and I'll put a link below, but you can go ahead and check that out and discuss it and it's something that we'll probably be discussing in our discord channel which you can access by becoming a patron. So if you go to the slash patron for $4 a month you can join us in our discord, you get our extended podcast which is another 20 to 30 minutes longer and you get access uh to uh our live chats that we do once a month with uh, all of us uh as long as all of us can make it and uh and our patrons. So join us there at the slash patron four dollars a month first month is free so let's jump into the latter half of chapter 18 of the ruin of balerion with
0: dan's big thought so since michael will be playing the part of dan today i had a big thought um having arrived before dan for the first time in forever (laughs) i'm usurping his place for one week Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so my big thought about this chapter was that what, what was interesting is the chapter not only did we split it in halves in our podcast but it seems to me appropriate that it can be split in half because up to this point the story of the silmarillion since the awakening of the elves has been the power and the rise of the elves all about the elves and and their fall in the skin slain and older elves fall but then their power and strength in middle earth but here in this chapter This chapter marks the the demarcation, it it is the demarcation line for the fall of the elves, the beginning of the end, I should say, the fall of the elves, and then the rise of men. And this chapter, basically, the second half of this chapter, which we're about to cover, is about the rise of men and how uh, unknown and very surprisingly to both Morgoth and the elves, the men are able to hold in in a a number of key places in Middle-earth. They're able to hold off the forces of Morgoth and provide a bulwark against his armies and in fact force a a, um, a temporary peace so the rise of men much the the much vaunted the men's much vaunted um weakness is not as apparent in this chapter and uh instead tolkien is leaning into the strength of men in the in the second half of this chapter so that's my big thought
1: yeah you know it occurred to me that is it is it that perhaps even not just the strength of men but that um morgoth underestimated them he didn't he didn't really hold to their uh actually being powerful enough to hold him back uh because he was sowing discord he was you know creating uh chaos hopefully between all the different houses of men uh a long time ago and to see that now that there there's some um, unity between them and unity between them and the elves was probably a surprise to him
0: maybe evil doesn't understand such things friendship Mm. is friendship is not a theme that evil tends to understand very well.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And you also see, um, you also see men like the company of Barra here that they just fight, even though there's no hope. Like they just keep fighting. It's like, Mm. I don't, I don't think he understands that because you see several times in the Simarillion that Morgoth surrenders and pleads for mercy. Oh, please, please don't, you know, and he's willing to be taken captive and he doesn't understand this band of men that they're just mortals and they're willing to keep fighting, even though he's going to kill them all. He's like, I, I don't care. I'm just going to keep fighting. <laughs> hmm.
0: That's right. And the, I think the phrase was, uh, we're talking about here now, father of one of the most famous men in Middle Earth, which we will get to next chapter. But here mm-hmm. would not flee from Dorthonion. To remind our readers, our listeners, Dorthonion is the region around the mount of the mountains, um, south of Angband. So it's just been, um, the whole fields in front of it, in between, um, Angband and Dorthonian have been laid waste in the Dagor Bragalach, um, and Dorthonian itself is being conquered. And so, um, it says, Babera here would not flee from Dorthonian remained contesting the land foot by foot with his enemies. Rather, um grim and impressively courageous way of stating how he fights and in fact he does in fact fight to the death slowly until he has down he's down to only 12 men i believe mm-hmm. and then we'll we find out at the very end that in fact even those 12 all of them die although we'll get more details about that next chapter except one
1: except one an important one very, very important very one. important one mm-hmm. one thing you brought up um A couple episodes ago Dan was that you know uh, elves have a hard time understanding death and the 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 finality of it and since elves don't understand it does it does it them going into battle does it make them less likely to go into battle because death is so unknown to them whereas death is a just it's a part of man right it's it's something that we all have to deal with and so if you know you're going to die anyway at some point does that make you more likely to defend things to the death in that way. Hmm. Whereas in elves, all we see is like if you have a great fire in you, that's when you're going to go to battle. But the other ones seem content, you know, you know we're, we're going to go ahead and, and found hmm. Gondolin instead of actually going into battle because I want to preserve. I want to just live. I don't want to, I don't accept death as something that's part of me. So I'm not going to go into battle and, and embrace it in a way.
2: Yeah. What's interesting to me wh- regarding the, um, the death of elves versus the death of men is that at least for the elves, they seem to understand where they go afterwards. When I die, I go to the hall of Mandos and I I don't know if that comforts them or if that uh, makes them afraid. I, I don't know what their reaction is to that, but for men, when they come into middle earth, they go, we have no idea what happens to us like no one's told us. <laughs> so I I I wonder you would think that would have the opposite effect. Yeah. They would be they would be less likely to go into battle or th- do things that would get them to g- get killed because they have no idea what happens whereas the elves at least have some kind of assurance like oh yeah, I I know where I go. Right. Um but yeah, you you're you're right though. It seems like the elves they kind of hunker up into these secret cities and fortresses and yeah, I think at the beginning of this chapter, it wasn't Fingolfin trying to rally everyone. Hey, let's all let's all fight Morgoth together. And then most everybody says, nah, no thanks, we're good. Uh, we, we've got relative peace and we've got our kingdoms. We're, we're okay. We don't need to fight. Um, well,
0: and I believe it specifically says that they weren't willing to bear the cost of the death that they knew would come if they had sieged, sieged Angban. So the elves do do indeed seem to value life tremendously, as one would expect if your life was unending such this would be a dear thing to lose right um would be mm-hmm. a, a life immortal so i can understand that nevertheless they do seem to have more of a peace about where like you're saying dan where they end up and even the fact that they can they're even allowed in many cases to exit the halls of mandos and live in valinor afterwards uh, you, you know in a form of a kind of resurrected form i suppose um although fewer sent back to middle earth but yeah it's it's super interesting and there's a reference to that difference in the way they understand time in this very second half of the chapter right remember uh, hurin and hurior um who are taken by the eagles saved from death by the eagles and taken to gondolin they're the first men to set foot in that city and in their conversation with uh turgon the king elven king of gondolin they um turgon has heard about the fact that Angband has burst forth from the siege, Mm. but he won't send any troops because his, he deems that, well, there's still time for Gondolin to come forth in her might later on. And now is not the time. And we also, and we find out that he sends, uh, that he sends messengers to try to (laughs) beseech the Valar too. um, Unsuccessfully, but, but, who are and huron respond to him and they say hey look um they basically say hey y- you may have a Im- immortal life and so you may think about you know yeah I'll wait for a couple hundred years and then I'll fight Morgoth but we don't have that luxury so can we go now please and uh <laughs> and they have the loophole of yeah. the fact that they they don't know the way to Gondolin they can't it can't even be tortured out of them because they flew there on an eagle so so they there there's no danger in them well There's no danger of that specifically, although we do know that when they're let go, word of their of 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 their strange um, escape and where they've been living comes to Morgoth through his spies. But uh, so it's not all good. But anyway, it's interesting because there definitely is that difference between um, elven concept of time and even with regards to war and then the human concept of time and war.
1: And it also makes me wonder, right, this whole, I've been thinking about it a lot, the whole idea of the length of an elven life, and how Sauron uses treachery, uses distrust, Mm -hmm. um, in order to sow seeds of that. And it's, I think, in a way... um, it's easier to do that with the elves. Uh, what he writes in uh, in this chapter is, but ever the Noldor feared most the treachery of those of their own kin who had been thralls in Angband. For Morgoth used some of those for his evil purposes and feigning to give them liberty sent them abroad, but their wills were chained to his and they strayed only back to come back to him again. Okay, so that that's talking about how, you know, it's sort of, um, I don't know, um, Stockholm Syndrome, in a way, right? That the, they'll, they'll go back to Morgoth mm-hmm. um, after, after going back to their own people. But because the elves live so long, the amount of time that Morgoth has in order to sow the discontent and the distrust is huge, whereas he t- doesn't quite have that in men. He can't, like, take a man over 500 years and poison him with distrust of his kin, whereas he can with the elves. Maybe right. that's a
0: thing, too. All yeah, right. that's, that's a good yeah. point. It may be cowing them in yeah or just conquering them seems to be more effective for him than yeah. than sowing distrust speaking of Sauron we had this thing a couple of episodes ago where we were just saying what our favorite line so I have I think the what an entrance man mm-hmm. Tolkien gives Sauron quite the narrative entrance into this story so I gotta read I gotta read Sauron's entrance and this is when the armies of Sauron have burst forth or rather Morgoth have burst forth but they've been held back at the sources of the Syrian, including the Isle of Tol-Syrian. And it says, I guess it's technically two sentences. But at length, after the fall of Fingolfin, Sauron, greatest and most terrible of the servants of Morgoth, who in the Sindarin tongue was named Gorthaur, came against Orodreth. Remember, Orodreth is one of the um, sons of uh, Phenarfin. the warden of the tower upon tolsirian sauron was now sorry sauron was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power master of shadows and of phantoms foul in wisdom cruel in strength misshaping what he touched twisting what he ruled lord of werewolves his dominion was torment
1: (laughs) what a great (laughs) yeah Exactly as we saw in the Rings of Power. Oh, oh wait. <laughs> his,
2: his dominion was hairspray. I mean,
0: you know. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs>
2: it's, it's really interesting how he takes uh, Minas Tirith by assault. It's, like, it's just like a dark cloud of fear fell on those who defended it, and they were driven out. It's almost like he didn't even need force of arms so much. It was just like they were, they were just all just uh, totally fearful, and they ran away. Um,
0: exactly, and do we do we remember? This is a like as all things in Tolkien, right? What comes before also comes after in a, in another form. So the second Minas Tirith in the in the Return of the King, Sauron initially with his ring wraiths almost takes the 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 um, the the fortress by terror as well. Mm-hmm. It's only the mm-hmm. presence of Gandalf that staves off the fear of the Nazgul and his presence that that stopped the Lord of the Nazgul or actually the witch King wasn't quite stopped by him. There would have been a wonderful battle that we would all love to see, have seen, but, um, but, uh, girl power intervened. So, yeah, but it's like, you, uh, (laughs) but it's the, uh,
1: it's, it's the, the fear that allows his orcs because they're, uh, you know, they're growing ever bolder. Um, and just because he's able to put that fear out there put the, what the way he puts it is, um, he is uh, right, master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength. But so so that allows them to keep pushing and to keep pushing and to keep pushing until eventually the men push back, uh, and uh, well, the men with with some of the some of the, the elves too.
0: Uh, right. For two years, the elves fought. Remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 That's and right.
0: the men and the men fought with them, and but so Morgoth does in fact take take land. So if we go to, back to our map. Um, what's different between this chapter and the previous chapters is now all of the um, lands of Dorthonian and the lands between the Ard Golan, between um, Thangorodrim and Dorthonian are now his, as well as the fens of Sarek all the way up to Ethel Syrian, and then he's taken down in the past tol Syrian. So, and it, it's, that's due to Sauron. So Sauron's the big hero from Morgoth's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, because he he actually wins a major battle basically on his own power, um, or something similar. So between the dragons and uh, and the and the Dagor bragaloch and um, then the his massive armies, and then the power of Sauron, Morgoth now has a chunk that he didn't have—a significant amount of land—and he has his armies are ranging down, and they would have ranged down further, but they're stopped by the men. In the in the forest of Brethel. Um and so port their his his armies are pouring down through that pass, and that's where between the, the pass of Tol the Isle of Tol and that pass that it guards, and the river um, Teaglin, uh, that's that area has be- becomes a, this battleground where the Men basically hold Morgoth there. Now the Elves are also holding Morgoth up in Mithrim, um, but but uh here it's the men that get the uh, oh, yeah. that get the glory
1: hmm. and and just imagine if torgon had been like you know I'm, I'm we're pretty powerful we we've we've risen to a lot of power maybe we'll just have a few guys come out here and assist because they're right there they're literally you know like right here to do something Yep.
0: and they decide not to well thingol uh, could too from doriath thingol um, could too sure you close head enough anyway right over there but no, the men—the men have to, and it's those Haladin again, the second group of men, right? They're, you mean they're par- you mean the people of
1: Haleth, the patriarchy of Halath? I mean, the <laughs> um, yeah. woman.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. They
1: renamed the Haladin the people of Haleth because of the. The woman yeah. that guided them and kept them together and created their their house essentially.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, I, I was just referencing Tolkien I actually know, calls I it know. the deeds of the Haladin uh, in this particular one. But yes, same people. And uh, so yes, the patriarchy um, ruled by a woman <laughs> has uh, has set up shop here in uh, Brethel. and um, and, and uh, they fight off the armies of Sauron themselves basically. Um, well, not basically not all by themselves. So they do call upon um, the elves. Uh, at, or at least a force of elves yes. that guards the border, the March Wardens. Now, re- for those of you that have read Lord of the Rings then, of course, which is probably everybody listening to this, then um, in a precursor to Haldir, the March Warden of Lothlorien, we have Beleg Strongbow, March Warden of Doriath, and he leads a force of elves with axes. Not a not your usual sort of uh, um, picture of elves, perhaps, but elves. Yeah.
1: And Let's remember, why do they have axes? Because... Really, the dwarves came in and helped them make Menegroth.
0: Correct, and so they were there, probably. Helping they have dwarven-styled weapons. Yeah, it's really the the Noldor that that are that are big into the swords. swords. So so we we discover that uh, the people of Doriath use, or at least some of the some of the March Warden's use axes. So they helped um, the men of that region, and they successfully. Drive away the orcs and uh, armies and hold them to that region, keeping Nargothrond safe and all of the lands southwest of that, of Brethel.
1: Nargothrond, Nargothrond which is right down here, if you see it on our video, right down there. So, And, and I, I don't have it highlighted here, but Tolkien makes the point. Oh, yeah, yeah, right here. Uh, thereafter, the Black Tide out of the north, after um, uh, the March Warden, the Chief March Warden, uh, Beleg Strongbow, uh, took a great strength of the sindar armed with axes into Brethel here uh, the black tide out of the north was stemmed in that region and the orcs dared not cross the Taglen. this is the river right here that you mentioned michael for many years after the people of haleth oh see the people of haleth mentioned it. <laughs> they dwelt yet in watchful peace in the forests of Brethel, and behind their guard the kingdom of Nargothron had respite and mustered its strength so Nargothron back here Completely one hundred percent fine. They didn't have to really like battle right now, even though Fingolfin was gone at this point. So there's a the thing.
0: Well, but... not only do they not have the battle, but it says specifically Morgoth doesn't even know where Nargothrond is. So oh yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, he doesn't know where it is yet. So so he
0: he they have made so little headway even though they took even though Sauron took Tol Syrian, they've made so little headway he doesn't even know the location of Nargothrond. This this
1: chapter is so much exposition without story in a way, right? Because you get Hurin and Huror, and if you've read through like we all have now, the Silmarillion, you're like, oh, Hurin and Húr, oh man. But what I <laughs> didn't realize is that Húr is thirteen. I, that didn't I didn't catch that in previous readings. How young he actually is when he goes to Gondolin with um, with with uh, Hurin, um, and so uh, these these kids they're kids essentially. I mean, they're teen, at that point they're men. They're fighting like men, but but they're they're not exactly um, battle-hardened veterans that meet up with Turgon.
0: Did it ever say how much older Huron is than Huor?
1: I'm not sure. I don't, anyway, I don't think it did. because They're very uh, young. Uh, yeah, he writes, they both went to battle with the orcs, even Huor, for he would not be restrained, though he was but 13 years old. Uh, but
0: Turgon likes them. Mm-hmm. So not only does he welcome them as his, and and care for them for a year as his own, as his family or his fellow elves even though they're not elves but he lets them go and lets them leave um, gondolin uh, on a technicality yeah Yeah. so so you're not allowed to leave gondolin once you arrive but because they were saved by eagles um, they plead that that means they can't possibly betray the paths to gondolin which is true they can't they don't know how to get Mm -hmm. there Um, so, uh, Turgon out of love lets him go. And then at that point we have this funny quote, this hilarious quote from Myglin, If everyone remembers the son of Aeol, the dark elf and Arithel, the white lady and Myglin, who's there and bitter says something that my bitter teenager says sometimes when she comes home from college, (laughs) he's hilarious. He said he has a basically it's this speech this sort of stereotypical speech to the men who are about to leave that that how uh, how the kids nowadays have it so much easier than he had it back in his day because back in his day the rules used to be tougher and no <laughs> one was when they said that no one was allowed to leave they meant no one was allowed to leave and nowadays you know you just it's people coming yeah, and going all yeah. over the place. So, yeah. Anyway, Miglin doing what he does best, which is being bitter. Yeah, he See, said the king's...
2: Your... No, yeah. yeah, when I was your age, bedtime was 8 o'clock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. I was like, yeah. Mom and dad took it easy on you. Yeah. Yeah, he exactly.
1: says, the the king's grace is greater than you know, and the law has become less stern than aforetime, or else no choice would be given you but to abide here to your life's end.
0: I mean, sorry, that's a not a lot nicer way of saying... Yeah. Mommy and daddy are a lot softer on you.
1: Yeah. So uh, apparently they're just three years apart. So Okay. So he was 16 16 and 13 then. Yeah. Pretty young still. Yeah. And they were there for how long? Uh, One year. One year. Okay. Okay.
0: So then they come back and everyone's like, where did you go for a year? (laughs) And they said, we were saved by eagles. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And (laughs) And everyone said. (laughs) And the response of their father is, is funny. But Galdor said. Did you then dwell a year in the wild or did the eagles house you in their eyries? but you found food and fine raiment and return as young princes, not as waifs of the wood. And Hurin answered, be content that we have returned for only under an oath of silence was this permitted. Then Galdor questioned them no more, but he and many others guessed at the truth. And, and in time, the strange fortune of Hurin and Huor reached the ears of the servants of Morgoth.
1: Which means he knows who to go to. To get to Gondolin, essentially, yeah. that's it's sort of like that windy path that the facts might take uh, until they eventually reach uh, a place they should not have gone.
0: Yes, and we see that we see the fore, the heavy foreshadowing of the downfall of Gondolin. I mean, it's not even foreshadowing; Tolkien just says says it straight out that the. I mean, yeah, and Turgon knows that the doom is coming, and so um, anyway, in the meantime, yeah, Morgoth tries different things. Um, he, uh, he pretends to be, to fe- he feigns pity to men and tries to win him to his side that way, yeah. saying that it's okay if you come and ba- pay homage to me then, uh, and admit that it was just, you were just under the sway of those evil elves, then, uh, all will be forgiven. And, uh, most of them, most of the men just rebuff him. And so he gets mad.
1: Yeah. Except for, like he, he mentions, Morgoth was well content for this. He had designed the sons of Boar um, were faithful uh, they followed Maedhras and Magla whereas the sons of Ufang, which is a great name, Ufang. It's very Germanic to me. Uh, the black were Ufas and blah, blah, blah. And they followed Carinthyr and swore allegiance to him and proved faithless. So you do have the different houses, some that do still hew towards. Now, these are the swarthy rough. men, though. Oh, so these, these are the swarthy men. You're these right. are the
0: fourth group of men. that we've. men. They are indeed. Yes. And, uh, and half of them are loyal and half of them are not. Hmm.
1: Were there any disloyal men, like, and we're kind of getting out of this chapter? Any disloyal men that Tolkien writes about that were not the fourth group? Were there any that they were just despairing men, but I don't think they were.
0: Right. They were despairing and they and it were does, traitors. They were it does traders, talk so. about how some of them were deceived. Remember the, the form, the false form of that dissenter, um, the dissenting men. So there, was, there were some men that left. I don't. Know, I don't think it says that they joined Morgoth here, but but it does imply that they were spies. Um, yeah, there were some spies among true. them, just, just like, like there were the spies among the elves. Actually, yeah,
1: yeah it makes me wonder. Like, uh, what, what would those elves look like? Because they were just wandering now, right? They 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 wouldn't die in the woods. They would just wander in their. Yeah,
0: their, that's odd, right? Like they're outcasts. Like, an, how sad to be an orphaned elf, right? Because you're no. going to be an orphan forever. just like unending orphanage
1: that's torture Hmm. right therefore if any of his captives escaped in truth and returned to their own people they had little welcome and wandered alone outlawed and desperate that's um that's there there's a great little story if we had a a talented writer to come up with about an outlawed elf who could never find a home who was actually still good anyway anyway i can see all these great stories in the in between the cracks of, of the Silmarillion sometimes that 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 weren't made i'm sure tolkien thought of too and he couldn't get to it because he ran out of time
0: i mean i just see i i think that's his style i don't even think he thinks he would think of this as um a failure or an incompleteness like the way he writes he just creates cracks for st- yeah for new, for new you're stories right. you're right um that, that's the way he works his mind works by just like you have that list of the men that survived the 12 um in the uh, out the outlaws of verahir and uh gorlim the the unhappy (laughs) (laughs) the the
1: best name yet
0: (laughs) it is the best name it reminds me i mean we're going to find out why next chapter but but um it reminds me of you know the seven dwarves grumpy yeah (laughs) gorlim the unhappy gorlim the grumpy not to
1: mention um the most misogynist name that tolkien has which is uh Bar here's wife, Emil the man hearted. <laughs>
0: Emil <Deer> the man hearted, <laughs> who saves her people by leading through her the uh, through the mountains yeah. and you know, hmm. out of great danger and fights, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All those See, all those <clears throat> fainting lilies or whatever <laughs> of Tolkien's world who can't uh, who can't right. lift a sword. Oh wait,
2: no, that's the opposite of the truth. So yeah. I do like how, um, you know, for me reading this the first time, um, just Tolkien's style jumps out at me, especially in these kind of chapters where he's writing like he's a historian. And to him, uh, like, like that when he lists all the names of each individual person who's remaining of uh, the House of Bara here, and how uh, he writes like... They were a desperate band that could, not be, uh, that could not escape, and they would not yield, for their dwellings were destroyed, their wives and children captured, slain or fled. From Hithlum there came neither news nor help, and Barahir and his men were hunted like wild beasts, and they retreated to the barren highland above the forest and wandered among the tarns and rocky moors of that region, furthest from the spies and spells of Morgoth. Their bed was the heather, and their roof the cloudy sky." And I, I just love how uh you know after he he's writing like he's like writing a legend of well, obviously he is, but like you know mm-hmm. that everyone knows the twelve like it's like it's almost like hmm. um like these these are these are like the the twelve uh disciples or something not not in re- in a religious sense, but like every, you know you, you these are the guys that you know. And it's just interesting to me right. that he's, he's, it's like, he's coming down afterwards and writing about it. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows this, you know, <laughs> right. You know, it reminded me, it, I couldn't help, but think of, you know, Robin Hood and the band yeah. of Mar- Mary men, right. These outlaws, many of whom have names. I have to say like the, that passage you read was brilliant, Dan, because I have to say, I was reading that and I was thinking, okay, so here is a group of 12 men that have suffered every loss that you can. Mm-hmm. They live a life, um, bereft of hope they're just desperate in the wilderness everything is gone they're like and they're and they're just their only future is to fight to the death and among them one of them was known as the unhappy so (laughs) what do you have to do in that group of 12 men to be known as the the unhappy unhappy. one (laughs) yeah like it uh, seriously like this guy must have put eeyore to shame because Uh, that's
1: yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah huh.
0: Well, and there are only two
1: of them that get descriptive titles. There's Gorlim the Unhappy and Hatheldir the Young. Right. Hmm. So not right. sure what that means, but
0: <laughs> yeah. So, our, the final line of our chapter is about these men. In that time also the outlaws of Darthonian were destroyed, as is told hereafter. And Baron, son of here alone, escaping, came hardly into Doriath. That beautiful use of the word hardly, which most modern folk have no idea why they, they don't understand what that means it means barely but or hmm. or with great with great strife so, or trouble right, so
1: so he he barely made it into doriath to save himself mm-hmm. because he was able to get into the uh the uh the girdle of Melian, essentially
0: is that yeah? Well, we're well, going to find
1: it. Nell, he, yeah, yeah. We'll find out in the next we're gonna, chapter. We're going go to all that, and he gets into, into So this it. is
0: baron baron yeah. son of Bara here, and it's interesting because baron is, of course, one of the um one half of the of Middle Earth's dynamic duo, and <laughs> which who who that, was you can't don't uh, what? dynamic <laughs> duo. You you know what that comes from, right?
1: Uh, Batman or Robin? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I don't. I don't think that that Luthien is the Robin to Baron's Batman. No, I think it's the other way around. Actually, I don't think Baron is the Luthien to Robin's. Ba- to you Baron. mean the Robin? Oh to... my gosh! I don't think Baron is Robin to Luthien's Batman either. I just reject that completely. <laughs> my attempt to
0: be pithy has failed. I've got, <laughs> failed I've, got to, I've got
1: to come up with a better analogy of characters than dynamic duo. Anyway.
0: But anyway, it's, it was always it was always cool to me that. You know the ring of Barahir, um, father of Baran, ends up on Aragorn's finger in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so there's that deep connection with um, both Arandil, who we haven't met yet, and and um, and Barahir and Baran through him.
1: Yeah. Well, that means that next week we are on to Chapter 19, Baran and Luthien, which is a long chapter. Long. No. And so we're going to break it up, in I think into three parts. So the first part we're going to read um is the I think the second hard break in the chapter where uh it ends with But none betrayed their Lord. So on my copy of the Silmarillion, that's about page two hundred, two hundred and one, 201, um, and it ends with, But none betrayed their lord, and the next section will start with in the time when Sauron cast Baron into the pit. So next week, let's jump into that because this is, you know, even like um I think uh to the day we're recording this on on Twitter. Uh, tweeted out what Bear, what tolkien wrote to uh, to his son right after his wife had died, and they were coming up with what to put on the gravestone so he wrote to to her to his son uh, probably christopher i 'm guessing i 'm not sure who it is um, maybe it was probably. his daughter. Uh, but in july 1972 he, he wrote i have at last got busy about mummy's grave the inscription i should like is edith marie tolkien 1889 to 1971 luthien hmm. brief and jejun except for luthien which says for me more than a multitude of words for she was and knew she was my luthien so certainly this story is the one closest to tolkien's heart and um he couldn't think of anything better to put on his wife's gravestone than the word
0: Luthien. In any lesser writer, that would be a sign of a paucity of creativity and intellect. Mm-hmm. That that the that the myth, the mythical figure closest in his mind to, uh, to his wife, is of his own creation. But when you read the story of Baron and Luthien, and you under, and you begin to understand the echoes throughout all of Tolkien's work. Um, I think it's I I don't think it's arrogance at all or paucity of imagination of which no one should accuse Tolkien anyway but
1: I agree I think a lot of fans these days would put that on their gravestone though and that
0: says a lot and that's true do you think that's a good idea
1: no I don't because the the um, the depth of the meaning of that is I think lost on pretty much everybody except for Tolkien who actually wrote it. I mean, he right. wrote this, he wrote Baron and Luthien, I think while in world war two or sorry, world war one, I. I believe it was, it was one of his right incarnational stories for middle. Earth yes. The first, because, the first version of it. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so this is what, you know, what he experienced, what kept him alive probably in a way um, was coming back to his Luthien. So anyway, next week we'll get jump into that. Um, so, this week, as we get into If You Like Tolkien, we're going to actually look at uh, a an article that Lewis wrote, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, who was a close friend of Tolkien for many, many years, that he wrote what, as he um, was reviewing The Two Towers and The Return of the King. And it's not really a review so much as it is a response to other reviews mm-hmm. of the two towers, um, and uh, so I'll link to this article below. and This is just a cleaner copy here that you see up on the screen. Uh, it was written. What did I have it? It was in nineteen fifty-five, I believe, right after the publication of *The Return of the King*. Um, and he starts off by talking about um, how he's annoyed, he's frustrated that people see that, that people have claimed that Tolkien's characters are black or white, are good or evil. There is no nuance to them and he 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 separates the point that no good and evil are black and white but characters in his stories in talking to- mm-hmm. i mean even down to gollum boromir aragorn um uh, frodo right good and evil is is there they, they do inhabit some of that gray ground in the middle between them and that they're not all one or the other they they make decisions that are evil or are not good right boromir clearly does that frodo clearly does that at some point um aragorn is, is maybe he's the closest, like Faramir is probably the closest thing to not making any decision like that. But even then um, there is a, you know, is is Faramir's decision to go into battle at the behest of his father? Is that, is that, is that a good decision? Probably not. So even then, right, we we don't have the black and white. Anyway, that was my first takeaway from this because he writes, Hmm. um, good and ill have not changed right here at the end of the first paragraph. Um, And then he writes, this is the basis of the whole Tolkienian world. Well that's what I got out of the first part of it. There's other points to be made too. What do you guys think about that and and where do you want to go into this from here?
2: Yeah, if you're asking like where I'm coming from, it seems like that's a problem with the critic, then it's a problem with tolkien that, um, yeah that that having having a black and white a good and evil it seems like they're objecting to the premise that you can have good versus evil like they want they want everything to be gray and they want all their characters to be gray and uh nihilistic it doesn't really ultimately matter what, what what makes a story really interesting is if things don't matter like <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> that seems to be their criticism like they just want things to all be gray
0: yeah. or if, the, if there's an patriarchy. admixture of good and evil if you're saying and and the argument that they make to try to steel man it a little bit and this is a common literary argument it is one of the hallmarks of the height of modernism actually and that is that their argument is Real people have both evil and good in them, so when you reduce everyone to an orc or an aragorn then you are um, being simplistic in a way which is not reflective of reality, and so that would be the maybe one of the ways I would put their steel manned argument, but okay. I agree with you, Dan. I think it is a problem with the with the reader interestingly i i I approach it from two angles one is I see in it the trend in literature, whereas prior to the 20th century, literature was, had no problem laying out for you good and evil. When you, lead, when you read Jane Austen, when you read um, Last of the Mohicans, when you read um, the great tales of the 19th century and the earlier folklore and fairy stories, um, you, you get an idea very clearly of what good and evil is. But then, in the 20th century, we got too smart for that, and modernism took over and said, what we got to really do is hold the mirror up and and recognize that the complexity of people that everyone's good and evil." And um, <clears throat> there is that's a weakness because. But you know, let me, let me fast forward to the end the end of my thought on that one, which is that nowadays, interestingly enough, we kind of see a resurgence where people are getting tired of the eternal gray of and and we we like. Um, a little bit more good and evil, even if the critics don't admit it, in film and literature. Um, but I tie it to the second part of his of Lewis's um, <clears throat> review, and and near um, the end, second to last paragraph. I don't know what it looks like in Jonathan's version, but if you go to, if you scroll down from where you are, Jonathan, um, it begins with but why some ask why if you have a serious comment to make in the life of real men Mm -hmm. must you do it by talking about a phantasmagoric never never land of your own Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because i take it one of the main things the author wants to say is that the real life of men is that of mythical and heroic quality so to tie that back to what you were saying i think that's a really important part of lewis's critique because he's pointing out myth is not so easily dismissed um, that the the deeds of real people gray though they may be can still have a mythical and heroic quality and how do you show that in a story by writing a myth and and so and that which is what tolkien did and he gave and he showed the quality of of people um Mm. in in the various um and regardless of which race of people it is they can all they can all be um show heroic uh, um, and mythic qualities and so so there's a that was one of my first takeaways was that lewis is here defend he knows what tolkien's doing he knows the importance of myth as he himself wrote, wrote a couple took a couple stabs at myth himself in different in different forms and um Slightly more allegorical than Tolkien would have liked, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there's a. Nevertheless, he he recognizes the 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 beauty and the goodness and the need for that and what Tolkien's trying to do.
2: And he's even defending uh, myth making in which there are archetypes where you have characters that are that are light, that are good, that are on the side of good. I I, I don't really understand the. The criticism that every character needs—you need to see the the, the 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 black in every character's soul in order for them to be interesting—or
1: or every character needs to be a reflection of what our world is like when it comes to that character. All, all of us clearly right. are not as good um, speakers as almost pretty much every character in a book. If people actually spoke as in books as we read them, then um, life would be intensely um, <laughs> intense. Right? We wouldn't be able to have like actual conversation if 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 literature reflected how we converse in everyday life imagine how boring that would actually be even not just our times but in other times right so you have to do things you have to make them more real as he says and not only is the writing more real and the reading and the the conversations more real because they mean more when they're written they're supposed to otherwise it wouldn't grab us so do the characters the characters have to be more real in the story right he he they are the characters are the black and the white of them are aspirational and doesn't mean that they're perfect um he writes let's see the um yeah, one can see the principle at work in his characterization of uh, is that of Aragorn? Um, much that in a realistic world would be done by characterization is here done simply by making the character Alpha Dwarf for Hobbit. The imagined beings have their insides on the outside. They are visible souls, right? They are more real because they're visible souls. Like and he, he goes into this in the next chapter where he talks about things being more real, like and, and the thing we mentioned last week where your imagination, when you dip something in the story, you're 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 creating a greater representation of who it actually is than just by representing it as if it was part of your life
0: hmm. I, I love really that like he...
2: that cloak oh go ahead
0: i was gonna i was gonna point out that i love his lewis's polling of a very philosophic point in the conversation between Aylmer and aragorn where Aylmer himself contrasts the green earth which is the real in in Lewis's mm. example with legends.
1: That's where yeah, well, that's exactly the point I was trying to make. You're right right here.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And Aragorn corrects him saying, "Actually, the green earth itself is a mighty matter of legend. In other words, the <laughs> yeah. real is legendary, sir." Yes. <laughs> and yes. so pay attention to it and that's what Tolkien's doing with his whole book. He's saying the real in our lives is legendary the, the 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 people that may be gray have black and white in them nevertheless they do heroic things and we and we can point that out
2: yeah, yeah. it's very it's very chestertonian that sense of wonder of of the purpose of it seems like for lewis and maybe tolkien is that the purpose of, of making a myth is to i think cs lewis has that line further down where he talks about the cloak or the veil of familiarity yeah, that's my favorite line from this yeah. whole
0: review, actually.
2: Yeah, when, when you're... When you're we're, we, we forget the wonder and the glory of being alive. And we're, we're surrounded by all these day-to-day concerns and worries and exactly. routines. And, and we forget the glory of being alive. And I think he's saying that the value... There it is. The value of myth is that it takes all the things that we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity... And I love that line. And that's uh, it's just, it's and that's what modernity
1: line. does. It tries to make everything more familiar. Yeah. Which just right. veils it more.
0: Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so I mean, it can entertain you for a while. I, I think of, for example, the um, American version of epic myth, which is a little sad when you think about it this way, is comic books. So the American culture <laughs> has has the only epic myth that American and what draws the young heart and mind to the to the um, um to the superheroes as written is not their gaudy costumes and it's not the hilarious comic book banter Um, that can keep audiences entertained for a few movies like Marvel did. Like, we're going to make these characters more familiar and relatable, so we'll make them banter back and forth like a real person. But they've missed out, and I think this is really true in the latest version, in the last 10 years of Marvel, they've really missed out on why we're really drawn to heroic stories. It's not because of the, the familiarity. It's because, in fact, it pulls away that familiarity and says here is something worth noting here is something wonderful here is something heroic and and Mm -hmm. uh and we and we want that and the sentence right after you read was the child enjoys his cold meat otherwise dull to him by pretending it is buffalo just killed with his own bow and arrow and the child is wise (laughs) <laughs> that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful statement because, I mean, it's, it's not that we're like, no, no, but it's not buffalo. Anyone that comes in upon a child and does that should be slapped because that's, there's, no one is going to pretend, no one's going to, the child is in no serious danger of really thinking that his cold meat is actually buffalo. He's, but he's doing, rather he's doing something that brings the heroic and the wonderful into his life and that should be celebrated
1: let's Hey, you know what this i, I want to talk about this more but we're going to do that in our extended podcast we're going to um i think there there are a few other points i think that we can talk about one about the war about world war one and the, the point that uh c.s lewis makes that um it makes it more real his experience in the war makes the like the battles in this uh story in the lord of the rings um uh yeah, reminded him of world war one as well um and then also um the impermanence of victory he also mentions and i thought that was an interesting point that he made um in this uh in this episode or sorry in this uh, article as well all right so we're going to jump into that next week again we're going to do the first third of uh baron and luthien chapter 19 we're going up through the second break, which is where, but none betrayed their Lord. It ends with that. So we will see you next week. Don't forget that you can join the conversation with us on Discord at uh, thewondering.com slash patron. You can become a patron there. $4 a month. First month is free. So if you find the conversation completely boring and the extended podcast not worth it, then just cancel and uh, and you can move on. But I don't think you will. I find that I like it a lot.
0: (laughs) This is why we keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. All
1: right. So we're going to leave you behind. If you want to listen on to our continued conversation, then uh, join us there at slash patron. So see everybody and uh, have a good week.
2: Bye, freeloaders. All right. Bye-bye.